You're listening to B-Side, the podcast about the second acts and side hustles of rock musicians. Today I'm taking a driving tour of Boylan Heights, a historic neighborhood overlooking downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. Now we're in Boylan Heights. We just crossed over the tracks and historic Boylan Heights. That's George Huntley, a realtor who spent most of his life in the Raleigh area. He knows this neighborhood as well as anyone. Over the years, he's lived in several different homes here in Boylan Heights. When I was living here, I lived in about three or four different houses here over the years. It was very bohemian. It was a lot of artists, a lot of musicians, but now it's these are more young professionals that have bought these old shacks and now they're like you know they're not really a, a largely not as affordable as they used to be the neighborhood is now on the national register of historic places and the prices for the craftsman bungalow homes here have shot up you wouldn't find anything under 350 and and if it's between 350 and 450 it needs work if it's over 500 uh, it's probably been renovated in the last 10 years. If it's over 700, it's just been renovated. And that's Boylan Heights. Those rising home prices reflect the big changes this neighborhood has seen since the late 1970s and early 80s when Huntley was growing up. Boylan Heights was like kind of the downtown. There were a lot of single parents renting rooms, raising kids. This is where you'd come and find... Uh, those kind of teenagers that were renting a room in the house. This is where you buy pot. Um, you know, so there were kids kind of living next to the drug deals. The big state prison, central prison is here. The mental hospital is here. It's all here. You know, everything that kind of had its own little sort of maybe darkness to it. This was Hotel Nicaragua. This is the first place I ever witnessed a, a, a pot sale go down. <laughs> now there's a Trump supporter living there. So the neighborhood's really changed. Raleigh has really changed. Huntley grew up in the nearby neighborhood of Cameron Park, a leafy upscale enclave of lawyers and university professors. We were a little bit in awe. We were a little awestruck by the proximity we lived to this completely different lifestyle. Huntley's roots run deep in Cameron Park. His mother still lives in his childhood home. She's been in that house for 63 years. She's 95. And see all these cars? That's her little uh, Bible study group, the Bible Bells, they call themselves. But before George Huntley was a realtor here in Raleigh, selling historic homes in Boylan Heights and Cameron Park, this was his gig.
That's the song Over There by the band The Connells. It's off the 1987 album Boylan Heights, named for the same Raleigh neighborhood. The song broke the Connells on MTV and kicked off a successful career on college radio and beyond. The band was founded in 1984 by brothers Mike and David Connell, along with lead singer Doug McMillan. They were joined by drummer Peel Wimberly and the band's second guitarist, songwriter, and keyboardist, none other than realtor George Huntley. And this is his B-side. Huntley and I continued our driving tour of Raleigh, and he showed me where the Connells got their start. So the early version of the Connells, before I was in the Connells, was a four-piece, and they had seven songs, and, and they started playing these, these parties, you know, for friends and stuff. And I was playing just me doing, like, Buddy Holly songs and songs I had written, and, and I was opening for other bands, and... And then Mike and I just started talking about me joining the band, and I went and bought a keyboard, and I bought a Volkswagen camper so we could haul our gear. Um, Fastest way into a band, right? And, yeah, I bought, the guy with the yeah band. I bought my way into the band. I, exactly. I, I had to really twist his arm to get me in there. We drove up to a contemporary house on a wooded lot overlooking a ravine. This is the, the old Connell house here, and the basement is where we uh, used to used to play. I'm gonna pull down the driveway. I don't. I really don't think they'll mind. This was our garage. It looks a little different now than it used to, but this is where the Connells used to practice in this garage. You know, there were a lot of boys growing up here, a lot of musicians growing up. There were some really cool kids that lived down here, Mark Burline and. Alex Erickson, they had a band in high school called the Blind Boys Gazette. And we just thought they just, they were so poetic and so cool and, and hip. And we were these little, like, <laughs> we just didn't hold a candle to that creativity, you know, the Blind Boys Gazette. I thought, yeah. So if we told them, I remember when, I, when me and the Connell brothers were in a band called the Connells, I remember those. I remember the reaction of some of those kids. They were like, uh, Chris Quinn said to me after seeing us play one time, he said, keep your day job. Because <laughs> we were like, we were sort of nerdy, you know, the wearing the Connell brothers, wearing those um, little button-down Oxford shirts. We would, we would wear shorts on stage, you know. Doug and I were both coaches at the Y, so... We were wearing our YMCA <laughs> uniform. But despite the Connell's plain look, their music was unique. The band released their debut album, Darker Days, in 1985, and the title track earned them acclaim far beyond Raleigh. That's one of my favorite Mike songs is um, Darker Days. It starts with the word and. A song, the song starts with and if I'm to wonder what to do. And 
I just used to think, man, why can't I, why can't I write a song like that, you know? And if I'm to wonder what to do. Seemed, I, I couldn't get away with that, but Mike could. Two years later, the Connells released their second album, Boylan Heights. Huntley described the making of that record as we drove through the neighborhood that gave the album its name. And this is why I think we named the record Boylan Heights. This is my take. There was a song called I Suppose, and he says, he says all the way to Boylan Heights. Well, I suppose that I've gone beyond caring for those who think like you. And yes, I suppose you were that way. And yes, I suppose that I came to find all the way to Boylan Heights. How are you? And, and I would say this, that when we were growing up, we were coming from Cameron Park, which was where the, you know, little, little more sophisticated kids were living in our neighborhood. Lawyers, university folks. But Boylan Heights was like kind of the downtown. And so the girls that would come out of Boylan Heights had a certain allure. They were a little tougher a little, maybe perhaps a little more experienced. And so I think naming our second record Boylan Heights was a bit of a nod, a bit of a tip of the hat to just this different part of our growing up. After lunch at a local barbecue joint, George and I continued our conversation about the Connells and the transition he made to a successful career in real estate. So I, I, I always think of the Connells as like the ultimate college radio band like i you know, i grew up listening to them in the in the late 80s early 90s when i was in college lots of airplay on campus lots of airplay on like 120 minutes on mtv or whatever the alternative programming was back then on mtv always like this close to like breaking in a big way uh you had told me a funny story or a couple of stories about some of the campus tours mm-hmm. you guys had done one of them with the notorious big but there's a catch to that one yeah, so we were a, we, we jokingly called ourselves blue collar rockers because a we would we would kind of do anything and college campuses were always trying to unite all of the diverse factions of their campus communities and so they'd get a band like us the sort of college alternative guys and Run DMC we we played with them early early on at uh, some campus but the the notorious big show looms very large in my memory and I, I want to say we were playing at Northwestern outside of Chicago and Tupac had been assassinated within months maybe close to a year before this and it was this was close to the time when B.I.G. was gunned down you know and so here we are warming up the stage for Notorious Big well he never shows up but his band is there and we're in the dressing room with them and we're sharing a locker room dressing room kind of in the gym with them. And there just couldn't be two different types of tribes in the same room. And of course we could tell something was up because they were, they were clearly without leadership and they were down there getting ready, all wearing their matching sort of leather outfits and stuff. And here we were in our button down shirts and, but the audience, there was some element of danger that I had never sensed 
emanating from the audience before. And of course, now I can truthfully say it feels like foreshadowing as to what was coming soon for B.I.G. Yeah, it was just weird. I just remember there was this one guy right in front of me in the audience, probably about 10 people back. It's just people standing. It's a very large crowd. But the look on this guy's face, he was terrifying. And he just he just looked like, A, he couldn't wait for us to get off the stage. And, and B, there was some nefarious intent. Uh, that's all I can say. Nothing ever came of it. No, because Big never showed. <laughs> but it was one <laughs> wild party worse. in the locker room, I'll tell you what. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Was there not a riot when, when he didn't show up? I mean, yeah, that, that, that not, you know, I do remember people being pretty upset about it, but it was a college show, so nobody, you know, the campus paid for it. So it wasn't like people were demanding their money back, but... And in a way, that was what was sort of beautiful about shows back then is that you, you never knew who you were going to be paired with. But by that point in our career, we probably had about four or five albums under our belt. And from playing long parties over the years, we had tons of cover songs that we could do, Any anything from Bella Lugosi's Dead to Sweet Caroline. We got to where we could sort of feel like what we needed to play right now. Mike would do a shout out, you know, if he felt like we needed to change things up, he could do a shout out and say, let's do 18 by Alice Cooper and get this thing going a little bit, you know. <laughs> so the, that whole workmanlike kind of thing, blue collar rocker, it was a real thing. We jokingly used that moniker to describe ourselves. But well, let's talk more seriously about the bands that did influence the sound of the Connells. Some people look at the Smiths and there's that kind of sad melody combination that you can hear in some of your songs, especially Darker Days, the song Darker Days. There's always this REM comparison that may just be a function of geography, both being from the South, REM from Athens, Georgia, you guys here from Raleigh. One of the more interesting influences that I had discovered was Jethro Tall. Yeah. And you guys even covered Living in the Past at one point. Yeah. Really, Mike was a huge Jethro Tull fan. I, me personally, I, not so much for me. I, I was like a Beatles guy. And, and so I think as far as I was concerned from the way that I saw music fitting in a pocket, I think my whole approach to how can I take one of Mike's lovely melodies and lovely songs and how can I add something to it. And I would take my lessons more from Harrison and Lennon and McCartney in, in just adding texture and uh, maybe another voice, having an instrument add another voice. And, and that just made so much sense to me. That was what moved me. And that was what I wanted to do for his songs. And, and I just felt like nobody did that better than the Beatles. I mean, I listened to the Stones. I, I guess I listened to the Who, but uh, really it was the Beatles that made me cry. You know, like, how did they do that is the kind of thing. Back in those days, you were playing a 12-string Rickenbacker, is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you, Mike was as well. What drew you guys to that sound? I was a huge George Harrison fan. And, you know, there was just an, there's an iconic photograph of George Harrison 
and his Rickenbacker that I think was probably one of my favorite pictures of him growing up. I, I don't know. I just liked I just liked that jangly, sort of punctuated but slightly harmonic little single notey things we could do with them. We just liked that that sound. Mike was far and wide the more mature songwriter at that stage in our career. He was he was writing. I mean, he he was writing songs that I, I just felt like they needed to be heard. I felt like people needed to hear these songs. And I could hear counter melodies in his music. So I heard intros, I heard the middle eights, I heard the outros. And so I would take, I would record Mike on a little Walkman cassette and I'd go home and I'd sit there and I'd listen to it and I'd, I'd play along with it. And then I'd go to practice and show him what I'd put on there. And sometimes it'd be guitar and keyboard. Sometimes it'd just be one or the other. And sometimes I'd sing back and vocals on them. And of course, we started working up one song of mine here and one song of mine there, just interspersing my song and my voice in to sort of add another little dimension. A little bit like George Harrison. A little bit. A little bit, if I, if, yeah, just to be agreeable, I'll say that, but actually the comparison stops there. <laughs> well, your initials yeah. are the same too. We'll just say George work. comparison. <laughs> yeah. So what's an intro or outro melody that you put on to one of Mike's songs that you're particularly proud of? Gosh, I don't know. I, I've always sort of thought the way our guitars work together on uh, Set the Stage, New Boy, Something to Say. Those were probably, those are the ones that kind of, get a gun. Get a gun was fun. That opening riff. Yeah. yeah. That one was easy. It, it, you know, what I mean by easy was it just kind of was, came out of nowhere. It just happened. In 1993, the album Ring comes out. Slackjawed was another, got up some airplay, college radio and around alternative radio. I remember hearing that a bunch. Yeah. And then 7475, this lovely, quiet song, became a major hit yeah. in Europe of all places. Yeah. How did that happen? What was that like? That was a real taste of success uh, for you guys, commercial success. Yeah. Uh, what did that feel like? To me, that's almost a story about Doug, Doug's maturation as a singer. We knew Doug could sing like that. We had heard Doug sing live where he hit this sweet spot in his falsetto that would just make you just reach for the Kleenex. He, he just had that voice that could find that sweet spot and I really sort of think that was the first recording that we made that captured that really sweet genuine side of Doug that we all knew was there but Mike had never quite written the song that capitalized on that so to me that song is like the greatest collaboration between Mike 
and Doug, just that sweet spot in how lovely his voice is on that song. That song did not need me. My only real thing I do on that song is just that little middle bit, just to sort of dance, just, there's just a little dancing part in the middle. hallucination about that is the, the girl that's sort of swinging her big skirt and sort of dancing and so that that movement was sort of like that memory of somebody flowing you know and trying to kind of put that image in a sound but once that song caught fire in Germany yeah you guys dropped what you were doing yeah and yeah. went over there <laughs> yeah. What yeah. was uh, so you were touring Europe for like a year. So what was that like? Well, we were already in our 30s. We had already done what we like to call the opera house tour in the US where we paid played those really nice buildings in the big cities, you know, that were built in the 20s and 30s with great acoustics and that's a real threshold in the US that once you establish that you hate to lose it, which is kind of what we did when we went to Europe and, and broke out of that circuit, we kind of lost our, our spot in that recurring bill. So in the long haul, we kind of lost our abilities to tour the places we, and play the places we wanted to play in the U.S. But, of course, we wouldn't trade that year plus of playing in Europe for anything because nothing compares to that experience of being – an American in the pre-EU Europe where every time you go across a border, your bus is being searched and you're changing currencies. And it was a real cultural awakening for us. We, we all were pretty well-read as a result of being on the road all the time. We, we read a lot. We'd go get stacks of books from the library before we would go on a road trip and spend time reading in bunks and if we you know so we 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 sort of like to know where we were going and we'd talk a little bit about what we were getting ready to see and we would share knowledge and that was a I, I think speaking for myself I grew up a whole lot that year in Europe I made some really big decisions about what I wanted to be when I grew up and I want to get to those decisions because that's the real B-side to this, to this story. But I imagine it must have been surreal for the band to be in places where people didn't speak English and have people singing along to 74, 75 or yeah. your songs. That just must have been amazing. That song was a huge hit. And apparently it still gets a fair amount of airplay. I, I go on YouTube every now and then and, and pull that song up just to see the... I check out the cover songs of 74, 75 sometimes, just the European kids that have made their own stab at that. That's the highest form of uh, 
flattery uh, is, is to see someone cover your song like that. That's really cool. And that was a high watermark for the band. It was. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think we were on top of the mountain as a band. We were playing really well. Life hadn't really started slapping us around quite yet, but the slap was coming. And the slap started while we were in Europe. And I think that's why I can truthfully say in my telling of the story that that's what was such a turning point in my way of thinking about life. Like, how does how is this going to fit in the greater long-term version of my story? And I guess it really started that one night when we got that phone call that David Connell's wife had gotten sick, really sick. And Jennifer Connell was a real sweetie. We all loved her. And she did not live, she did not live very long after that. And that, uh, that took its toll on us. I, I, I mean, it just, uh, you know, you come home from something like that and you, you realize that you, you look at your family and your friends differently. And you certainly look at David differently. And Mike and I were looking at each other differently. Doug and I, you know, we realize how vulnerable we all are. After Jennifer Connell's death, the band was at a low point emotionally. Right at the time, they were hitting a high point musically. George Huntley kept writing songs, and in 1996, he released a solo album called Brain Junk. And after two more albums with the Connells, George made a decision in 2001 that changed the course of his life. Really, when I met my wife, Amelia, a light went off in my head. And I, and I met that person that I knew I needed to be with. And I knew that the band and a marriage to her could not, I could not coexist in both marriages. I just knew it. That the life on the road was not going to work. So we got married, and our son Sam, our oldest son Sam, was born in 99. And I can remember that, that heartbreak of being gone, even just for a long weekend, and coming home, and, and him not coming right to me, just as a little toddler. And I just remember that feeling of like, oh, man, I, I just don't want to miss any of this. And the, the, the larger image of myself was starting to pop out and you know the pupa the parental pupa was busting out of the skin you know and I and this larger being called dad was taking over this image of being this responsible husband and father and I don't think I would have been able to say that back then I, I can really only frame it that way now from a historic perspective and you might see that in your own life there's something that happens when you get back and you look back. And, and I can truthfully say now, that's one of the things I'm most proud of, was making the decision to do something else, to break free. And it was hard because these are guys that I grew up with. And these are guys that I love. I love to this day. I love them like brothers. But to successfully break from it was going to be surgical. And there was no easy way to do it. And I knew that because I think we'd made maybe eight or nine. I can't remember how many records we made together, but we'd been together since 1985, 84, 85. Yeah, in 2001, I was, gosh, I was almost 40 years old. I was a man. 
And I finally found a girl that just seemed like the perfect partner for me. And so I did it. I went in and I told them that, that I, couldn't, I couldn't do this anymore, that I needed to do something else. And so we just we did it real amicably. But it was still a little weird. It was, it was, it was a little bit hard. It, it kind of hurt. It's like a divorce. And that's what it felt like to me. It really took me years to get over that aspect of the band. But in a now, of course, at 57, I can, I can look back on it and say, yeah, that's, that's the way I am. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty loyal, and I, I can't imagine doing it any other way. I can't imagine just being able to walk away from something like that. So then you were looking for something to do. Yeah. Some kind of career. Yeah. And you had some ideas, but you ended up eventually finding your way. Yeah. Well, I wanted to teach school, but, you know, I I made some phone calls and found out that that really, in the 1990s or early 2000s, I guess it was, that wasn't very practical. There was no way I would be able to make enough money teaching, you know, fourth graders and live in the house that I had bought as a Connell. I wouldn't be able to afford to, to live that way. And so Amelia and I would, on Sundays, we would go to open houses. And finally one day, Amelia said to me, she said, why don't you get your real estate license? You love houses. You love talking about them. You love looking at them. You love Raleigh. You love driving around. You know it. Why don't you go get your real estate license? So I, I did that. And I was selling real estate for a little while in the last leg of that farewell while I was still in the band. I I remember riding down the road with my little flip phone, cell phone, trying to take a call in the van while everybody was talking, you know, and it was impossible. So when, when the band, when the shows ended for me and Mike Ayers took over full time and I was able to devote myself and become a full time realtor, I just dove in and I, and I loved it. I, I really, I, Back in those early days, I found that I really sort of needed to not be a Connell. I didn't want to get real estate jobs as a Connell because you just don't know what the preconceived notions are people are going to have about you. I wanted to really be professional. And so I, I sort of manicured this concept. So I went to work for a larger firm and I soaked up what the other agents were talking about and what they were doing. And I did, did my phone duty and tried to learn the lingo and everything. And over time, because I, I gave myself over to it, 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 it started coming to me. People started calling me. And when the recession hit in 09, I took that as a sign to start my own firm. And I've never looked back. That was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Uh, really, this week I celebrate my ten years of having my own firm, just being a lone wolf, solo <laughs> realtor, and that's really perfect for me. What do you like best about selling homes here in Raleigh? I love showing houses. When somebody calls me up and they say, "Hell, oh, man, I want to see this house," I feel that little surge of yeah, because I know that's where dreams are. I know that people walk into the door and there's that expectancy, there's that giddiness and is this the one? And I love that, that moment, that, that what are we going to find, that ex- expectancy. Doing a good job, is, that's enjoyable. 
that makes that beer taste good at the end of the day, you know, when you feel like you really put in a good day. Another thing I think real estate is good for that's for me is um, it's very project-centered in the way that a song and an album and even a tour, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And a relationship with a buyer or a seller is like that. You, you have a project start, and it's, there's the working machinery part of it, and then there's the celebratory end. And I, I like that. That, that. that feels like me. My lasting thought about melding two distinctly different careers together is that it took me a long time to realize how the music benefited the real estate in a way that it took me warming up to it. It took me years to really figure out a way to find that harmony. And the way that I did that was I accepted it. I stepped back and said, you know, you can't change anything. You can't go back and rewrite anything in your own history. But what you can do is you can say, you know, this this is the way that it was and this is now. And when I was mature enough to do that, to just accept it and, and let it be a part of, of who I am today without any apology, then the real estate became really easy. But... Uh, you know, there is that moment when you're the schism, right after the schism, where you don't know how it's going to fit. And so you you downplay, you downplay, and you're like tamping this part of your life down. And part of that's an emotional thing. And then finally, when you just say, it is what it is, you know, just go with it, let it be. Then your blood pressure goes back down and you just kind of say, hey, I am who I am. I think that has taken me, uh, at that prob- I would be willing to guess that took me 10 years or so to, to really find that. And I think if there's any moral to my story that I would prescribe to other people that are trying to break free and trying to start a new career is that, that I would suggest to people that you... You just be yourself. You just relax into yourself and let whatever you've done in the past be unapologetically part of your past because I can't change it. And try not to let it be a burden and em- embrace the, the, the moment because life is short, man. It goes away mighty quickly. George Huntley, thank you so much for doing this. That's great advice. Thanks for being Court, with me today. Thank you for making this haul down here to Raleigh. It was great to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. George Huntley found his way in his career after the Connells, and the Connells are still making music, albeit without George. But in 2014, the band marked their 30th anniversary with a special show in Raleigh, and George was right back on stage for a few songs. I'm Court Harson. Thanks for listening, and join me again soon for another edition of B-Side. B-Side.